0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Binge for a new series I'm doing here called The Executive Series. I'm going to be speaking with executives across various industries to gain their insights, learn about their experiences, the things that contributed to their successful careers. I have the pleasure of joining with me today a former colleague of mine, a very good friend, Frank Kimmerling. Frank, welcome to The Binge.
1: Thank you, Jeff, for having me.
0: Absolutely excited about today's episode. Thanks for spending some time with us. Why don't you start out by giving us a little bit of a background about
1: yourself? Sure. So I started my career in the Midwest, which is where I'm originally from. Right. And I started in public accounting. I pretty quickly moved to a high-tech manufacturing company that was spun off of General Motors and had been purchased by investment bankers uh, out of New York. And that's where I really cut my teeth. I had the opportunity very early in my career to work with some very influential people, really smart, really understood business. And that's where I first learned how to break a business down and understand its cost drivers, its value drivers. I was involved in due diligence for a number of acquisitions. We understood and needed to understand and understood the the cost structure within the organization and then ultimately what that looks like when you take that external profitability. So it was a great experience to start my career. It was a lot of work, but it was Absolutely. a great experience because, you know, I had that opportunity to really learn and understand and be guided towards how to look at business and then take it from there and be able to do future planning, forward planning, things that, that, you know, can really change the trajectory of a business. I then moved out to the East Coast. And on the East Coast, I've been the chief financial officer and also the chief operating officer for a number of different companies in different industries. And I've had the opportunity to work with some really great CEOs, some really great colleagues and peers such as yourself. And also some really great investors. The companies ranged in terms of equity ownership from private equity owned, venture backed, public, and also uh, private companies as well. And I feel like that that breadth of experience in different industries with different CEOs and different ownership structures has really gave me a lot a, a great broad background to work from. <clears throat> that has really helped my career going forward.
0: Very interesting and and great background. So you mentioned early on in in your background that you started out in the Midwest, you moved out to the East coast. What were some of the lessons you learned working there in the Midwest that you've taken with you and leveraged for the success of your career?
1: So there's two primary tenets that I carry with me uh, really throughout my life, both professionally and personally. And those are hard work, and common sense. Right. So if you can, if you can work hard and keep a really good head on your shoulders and have common sense, right, you can go a long way with whatever you choose to do. So I think that those are two kind of fundamental primary tenets that most people should have. We shouldn't shy away from hard work because uh, you know I, I I say sometimes it's called work, so sometimes it should be hard. But if you keep, but if you keep good common sense as well, <clears throat> it'll help you navigate, and I think that's critically important as well. So you know, those are the two things that that really I I kind of carry with me.
0: Very interesting. So I've read a lot recently, and you probably have as well. Where there's different schools of thought about what a CFO is. You have a plain vanilla numbers person, and then you get mixed in with the school of thought that. There's a dividing line there where they should be more strategic. There's a blend there, in my opinion. What 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 are your thoughts on what makes a successful CFO?
1: Well, I think there's a number of things, and there's you know, depending on the the nature of the business, there can be specifics or, or particulars that you know you need to understand you know in order to be successful. But generally speaking, I would say that you know, you want to make sure that you understand the business you're in. So, you know, that starts with the numbers. You need to understand the numbers. But really what I'm talking about is understanding broader than that. So understanding the commercial strategy, understanding your customer base, understanding your cost structures and your supplier base. Because if you can do that, then Mm -hmm. the numbers are going to mean a lot more, right? Second is to be fact-based and unemotional. And that's not to be confused with not being passionate about the business and what you do. But the facts are the facts and if you can keep emotion out of it. And oftentimes we, you know, we all get emotion, right? right. Decisions and things get excited and you know you have a number of people that that you're trying to work with and that's okay. Emotion happens, but if you can when it comes down to decision making If you can be the person in the room that can take the emotion out, leaving the passion, and then get down to the facts, then better decisions will be made by the group or by the company or by yourself. So I think that's a a really important trait to keep, is to try to be fact-based and unemotional. The third is surround yourself, make sure you have good people. CEO told me once <clears throat> that point. it's always about people. Right. So whether that's people that work for you, whether that's peers and people that work with you, right. or that is people that you work for, surround yourself with good people because no one can do it alone. And if you have good yeah. people around you, then better decisions will be made. And it, 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 it's important to, you know, evaluate. And evaluate strengths, weaknesses, you know, uh, with with the people that you're working with. And then work within that framework because most people have strengths. And if you can find those strengths and leverage those as a group, then you're going to be more successful. The last trait that I would say is really important is the mindset that failure's not an option. So I've carried that with me. And that doesn't guarantee success. That's right. But if you walk into any situation, any company, any endeavor, and you walk in with the mindset that failure is not an option, then you'll train your brain to uncover all the different avenues in which to succeed. And if you can do that, more times than not, you will succeed. Again, it doesn't guarantee success, but more times than not, you will succeed because there's more than one path. There's more than one way to get there. So That's if right. failure is not an option and you can vet those out as a team, um, you, can, you can succeed in about anything you, that, that you do.
0: Okay, so you're coming into a new organization. How do you go about onboarding your succe- yourself successfully in that organization?
1: For me, I break it down into kind of two chunks. So the first ch- the first ninety days and the second ninety days, right. and it doesn't work perfectly. It's not completely linear like that. But if you bucket them, and the large part of what you do in the first ninety days is, as a CFO, is to understand the books and records. Right. It's really really important, and you almost at times have to force yourself to not get pulled too far into the business side of the business just yet. There's time for that because you really need to understand the base that you're working from. So that first 90 days is understanding the books and records, and it's also understanding the team that you have. You have to evaluate both, make sure that you're starting from a solid base. From there, in the second 90 days, and really some of this happens in the first 90 days as well, but primarily in the second 90 days, is to understand the business as I mentioned before. It's really, really important in my opinion to understand the commercial side of the business, understand the the, the cost structure, understand the, the supply side, because after 180 days, if you have good, solid books and records, if you have a team both working for you and working with you and working above you, that that is solid and and you know can can accomplish then you've got can accomplish what we need to get done then you have a good base to start from and couple that couple that with understanding the business and now you're in you're in you know really good shape i want to mention on the evaluation of team is that it's important to come in and do that and to do so quickly and my approach has been to, you know people typically fit into three buckets All right Bucket one is they get it, they get it today, they understand where we're going, they have the skill sets, they're ready to go. Bucket two are people that may get it, may not get it yet, but may get it or can get it. Right. Need coaching, need training, need, you know, maybe have never been allowed to make a decision, maybe have never thought of themselves a certain way or or sometimes don't even know what they know. Right and then the third bucket are people that either do not have the aptitude or the attitude to get done what needs to get done. Most people in my experience fall into the first two buckets, which is which is great. Makes it easier for you, right? It makes it easier and you know, it's 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 good that most people fit there because that third bucket, that's a tough bucket. Yeah. Right? But you have to be honest with yourself and you have to be honest with the people in that bucket if there are any because it may be that they're just in the wrong position maybe they've put it been put in a position and they don't have the background or the skill set to to do what needs to be done not necessarily their fault they're doing the best that they can so it's aptitude it's skill set you know and it's also attitude because you know you you want people that want to learn you want people that want to achieve and those are the people that kind of fit in that in that second bucket that you can really work with. And that plays to one of my strengths, um, which is I like to mentor people. I love it when people are in bucket one or bucket two, particularly bucket two, because you can really influence other people, which ultimately leads to your success and in the long run leads to their success. So, uh, So that's kind of how I break down evaluating people. And nothing is perfect. It's not that black and white that it's a perfect bucket. But you really have to be honest about where they are and where you need them to be. One of the uh, <clears throat> excuse me, one of the things that I kind of think about, and as you can tell, I'm a very linear, box-driven, numbers-driven person. Right. It's, if you have somebody in a in a in a position, and let's say that from a skill le- skill set level, they're at a two and you need them to be at an eight, one of the important things I think to evaluate is the amount of time it's gonna to take to get a two to an eight. And if they have the attitude and aptitude, then that time frame can be short. But if they don't, then you may not have enough time to bridge that big of a gap. If they're a six, okay, then getting them to an eight or a nine, right. you can do that. So I think it's important to, to break that down and understand what you have. And then hopefully most people will fit in bucket one or two, and then you can work with that.
0: Really interesting that you um, stratify the staff that way. I think one of the things that leaders need to understand, which I've taken great pleasure in, is when I've had somebody on a staff that excelled and moved on to greater things, it's really a feather on your cap. Right. For that for yourself, but also to get them to the next level. And I've had plenty of people that have worked for me and I know some of them that have worked for you as well, that have moved on to bigger things. So it's a it's a real testament to how we approach managing people. Which leads yeah, I, me into my yeah. next question, right?
1: Yeah, I was just gonna add to that, Jeff, that that you know, when I look back and I see people that I've worked with and they may have started as You know just a staff level person whether that was in human resources or accounting and i look at them now and they're at a vp level then i take a lot of pride in that they did the work they did the work but being able to mentor them and 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 guide them along you know that that's very satisfying
0: so that sort of dovetails into the next question you talked about mentoring and we talked about developing talent on our teams watching people grow excel move on to bigger and better things What do you consider or how would you describe your management style?
1: So my management style is very collaborative. Sounds like it. Yeah. Um, And it's, it's fact-based, it's collaborative and it's clear. I think with clear expectations that are agreed upon, you'll get better results. Too many times, the expectations or the communication of those expectations are not necessarily clear, and we have to remember communication is not just about, you know, Jeff, you or I telling somebody what they need to do. Right. It's, it's also about them understanding it and them hearing it, right? So that that goes into that, you know, um, aptitude, attitude, willingness to learn, wanting to achieve, but. It's also, there's also responsibility on us to make sure that we're clear and concise and that they understand the why. There are some people who, just the way that they're made up, right. can't move forward until they understand the why. And that's fine, right? Mm-hmm. I'd much rather have people understand the why of what they're doing because then when they go to perform the task or, or do their job, it's going to make them better. So I think being very clear and concise on mm-hmm what we need to get done, how we need to get it done, and why. I think that's really important. But then that collaborative piece is, you know, making sure that you're using tools, you're explaining, you're getting opinions because nobody knows everything. So mm-hmm. getting that intel from people, and sometimes it's people that, that, you know, you may have inherited that work for you, but they have skill sets, they have knowledge, they have uh, contribution to add. Sometimes you have to pull it out of them, which is interesting <laughs> uh, because they may not have been in a position where anyone ever asked them their opinion. But I think that, that if you do that, what you find is that they have a lot of good, good information. And then just be fact-based. Right. So the facts are the facts, the numbers are the numbers, if it's, you know, a, a numbers game. And so when, You can be fact-based. People appreciate that. It helps them understand why. And it takes some of the emotion out of some of the things that you want to do.
0: It's interesting. So you've onboarded yourself. You're immersed in the organization. You have your own organization, the finance team. What do you do to bridge your organization, the finance team across the rest of the organization?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So my approach is really really starts with a mindset within the finance organization and some organizations have it from day one other organizations need to be coached or mentored there but the the mindset is that at the end of the day finance and accounting is a service organization and it's a service and our customers right are our peers the rest of the organization could be the ceo could be the board Right. We have a number of customers. And if you think about everything in terms of customer supplier relationship, I think that really helps define what what needs to get done and how to go about doing it. So as soon as you change that mindset or if you're fortunate enough and you have a team that already gets it and you start to provide high level service to your customers, whether that's, again, other departments or the CEO or the board, and start to give them business intelligence, Those business intelligence that they can then use and work with. And when I say business intelligence, sometimes that's very forward thinking. It's very, you know, it could be commercially driven. It could be uh, profitability driven, but it can also be, you know, budgets. Right. So budgets are business intelligence because that tells an organization, here's where we're going here are the constraints or here are the things that we need to do within that, within that um, plan. And here are kind of the rules of engagement. So we talked earlier about being clear. That's another example of being clear with an organization. You, you include them in the budget process for sure. And, and sometimes that doesn't happen, but it's really important to do so, in my opinion. And then that's your plan. Now, you know, things will come up from here to there. But that's that's your plan. So so providing that intelligence and then providing here's how we're doing against that, that gives if you think about it, that's not just a scorecard. I mean, in, in some ways it is, but in another way, it's telling another business leader or department manager, OK, here's how we're doing against that plan. And that gives them the ability to then adjust left or right to get back on plan.
0: Okay. So it's interesting. You've onboarded, you know, your organization, you're bridging them to the rest of the organization. Let's move back to you. Now as CFO, you can look at communication across an organization down into your organization, your finance team across the other C levels up to the CEO and outward to the board. How do you communicate with your staff, which you said is collaborative. So we sort of know that, but let's talk about the other C levels now across your level and up to the CEO and the board maybe you could speak a little bit to that
1: sure so when you're communicating with your team or down it tends to be very tactical here's what we need to do here's how we need to do it it's collaborative but it's very it's very tactical right it's a tactical plan right when you're communicating with other sea levels or you're communicating up to the CEO or the board I think it's really important to, to take that up a notch. Right. If the details are important and you can't gloss, you, you know, you should not gloss over anything that uh, in terms of important details, but percolating it up to a level that says, okay, now he, here are the most important things, laying it out in a way that they understand and learn, right. That's really important. Really important to understand who your customer is and, in that case, and in the case of a C level, uh, or in the case of the board or the CEO, it's really important to understand how they look at the business because you may have yeah. to translate Very the information that comes up from, let's say, your department and translate it into a language that is most meaningful for them. Particularly when I think about I, this, somewhat applies at the C level as well, but certainly at the CEO level and at the board level, sometimes they don't have. Yeah incredibly bright people but you know if it's a board they may be on six boards right <laughs> and so <laughs> so you have to be able to take that kind of granular information distill it up let it percolate and present it in a way that allows them in their language to understand the issue the opportunity the the performance pretty quickly okay. right they have to be able to look at it and be able to understand if you spend too much time having to understand what you're presenting at a board level, then you need to step back and say, okay, wait a minute. I'm not speaking the right language here.
0: Understood. So early on in our discussion, you mentioned that you were CFO and you have been COO as well. What do you think are the key traits for the CFO to possess to move sideways within an organization on the C level, or maybe ultimately up to the CEO level?
1: So I think that comes back to something I said earlier, which is understand the business. Right. And oftentimes a CFO might be thought of as the numbers person, right? The numbers guy or girl. And that's kind of where you start from. But if you can, if you can migrate into a business person first that happens to have finance and accounting as a, you know, as a background, right uh, and then you have a seat at the table if you can s- be part of those discussions where you're adding value you're adding right. ideas <clears throat> you're talking about different opportunities and what we might do and what the risks are and what are the opportunities in that in that decision then you become a business more of a business person than you do you know just the numbers just the numbers person and that can lead to great opportunities in other areas. So understanding cost structure, understanding how uh, uh, productivity within an organization, which has a, obviously a a profitability component to it, right? But how to then affect that, how to then change that dynamic so that, you know, you're not just reporting the news, but you're actually providing and creating information to help, change or help, you know, uh, drive the news. So that can lead you into an operations role, whether it's on a COO level, or it can lead you ultimately into a CEO level. Um, If you spend, oftentimes in my experience, CEOs are very commercially driven. So, So understanding the commercial piece of the business, understanding your customer base and what the real value proposition is, that can help you ultimately one day you know, move into that CEO seat. So I think, you know, kind of in summary that if you take the numbers, distill them into business intelligence, have a seat at the table and, and participate as a business person in decision-making, then that can be a roadmap into some of those other C-suites.
0: Understood. Understood. So, we talk from a personal perspective, you know, going through my career, I've leveraged a lot of people that I looked up to along the way. They've been there. They had the experience. I I, I spent time with them, learned, understood what got them to their level. What's some of the career advice you have been given
1: along the way? So there are there's kind of three pieces of career advice. There's lots of career advice that I've gotten along the way. And that is from, I've had executive coaches, okay. career advice from board members, career advice from peers such as yourself and CEOs. And, you know, I'm a, I'm a sponge. So I take that advice. I want to learn. I want to understand. Um, I want to, you know, I'm always trying to improve, always trying to add a little bit of, you know, um, a, a, another tool in my tool belt or, change my approach a little bit, depending on the situation. So, you know, there's a lot. But as I think about that question, and kind of distill it down into, you know, kind of a shorter list, I would say, some of the best career advice I've been given is number one, know what you don't know. Hmm. So too many many people focus on what they know, right? And, you know, if you've had a successful career, you likely know a lot. But in my opinion, it's more important to know what you don't know. And then right, that's interesting. Either, and then find those people that do know and learn from them. And sometimes those people might be the CEO, might be the board, might be a peer, but sometimes those people might be somebody that works for you, that mm. they have a level of knowledge in something that you just don't have. So you want to know what you don't know, find the people that do, leverage that for success, and then learn from it. Right. So the second would be no ego. It's not about the individual person. Right. It's about mission loyalty. So mm-hmm. no ego. And sometimes that's hard to do. You know, we're all, you know, we can be competitive at times and we can be, we, we, we have strong opinions on things. But you just have to check yourself. And it's not about, you want to be an honest broker. You want your, your, Our argument in, let's say, a debate to be always be about what's right for the company, not about you being right. So I think if you can remind yourself to not have ego and that that's not to say that you're not confident, that's not to say that you're not passionate about, you know, and and you can have a a, a spirited debate. I think that's really important. But as long as you don't cross that line, as long as you know where your line is and keep asking yourself, is this more about me being right or is this really about getting to the right decision. Right. So I think that, that that's really important. And, you know, these things are easy to say. Sometimes they're not easy to do, right? We're all people, we're all human, Absolutely, right? Absolutely. Jeff, you and I have had debates, right? Oh, yeah. But, but, you know, I think if you can just work that and you work it, you know, every day, every, every meeting, remind yourself, then I think that that goes a long way. And the third piece of advice is to always have a plan B. Hmm. and sometimes a plan C. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, Mike Tyson, I think it was Mike Tyson that said, you know, everybody has a plan until you get punched in the mouth. <laughs> so <laughs> then what do you do? And That's so true. You know, in any business, in any endeavor that, that you do, if you can train your brain to think, okay, here's the plan. Now, let's think about what could go wrong or what could go right. It's not just a, you know, a, on the wrong side of the scale or what could go right or what could go differently. And then what's the plan for that? And if you have a plan for that, whether it's a plan B or a plan C, then what it actually does is it helps, it helps the company operate and it can help a lot of people, CEO, you know, um, other C-levels, people beneath you. It can help them have comfort. Right. You want to be the person that says, okay, this happened. Here's what I think we should do. Now, plan B might not be the right plan. That's why you might have a plan C. But if you can if you can go about it that way, and, and it's really not just the, the the not just the idea of having the plan, but really right. training your brain to not be satisfied with plan A and think about what could go wrong and then have some um, have some ideas or have you know in some cases a, a pretty well thought out plan that says okay if it goes right or if it goes left and th- that this is what we're going to do and Jeff you know you you say all the time and I think it's I think it's a good saying which is you know you want to play chess mm. not checkers
0: that's right
1: so chess is about that that's next right. move and the move after that that's right and and so I think if you can apply that to business, then, you know, you'll be really successful. Absolutely.
0: I was thinking that as you were saying that on the last point, so I'm glad you brought that up. So this has been really interesting, Frank, as the executive, okay? And typically what I do when i sitting across from somebody and say an interview, I'll separate the person that is the executive, is the employee with the personal side to learn something about them. So I'm going to put you on the hot seat here, okay? Okay. <laughs> let's, conclude the, let's conclude our discussion with uh, three questions. Random questions, no particular order, no particular sense. <laughs> okay. <laughs> first question, what was your first job?
1: My first job was a paper route.
0: Really? I didn't know that.
1: Yeah, I'm uh, I'm a little older than 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 you know lots of people, so people may not remember <laughs> people, um, <laughs> people may not remember paper routes.
0: Oh, that's great!
1: But you know, I grew up in a family where we had six boys um, and one girl, so we mm-hmm. had seven. kids. My, my parents had seven kids, and we were taught to work. And one of the first things that you could do at a pretty young age, I think I was in third or fourth grade. Is you could deliver newspapers. Now my route wasn't very big; it was like two, you know, two different streets. Right. But you could deliver those newspapers, be relatively relatively safe in doing so. You collect the money on Thursday, and you know maybe you make ten bucks. So, and I remember days where because all of my brothers did the same thing, and as you got older, you you know you you went out and got bigger routes. That there were days sitting on a patio where there were just newspapers everywhere because we would take the newspapers, roll them up, rubber band them so that we could then deliver. And so, you know, I would have three or four brothers plus myself sitting on this patio with just newspapers everywhere. And we're just wrapping newspapers with, with rubber bands. So that's a great memory.
0: Are you, were you a Walker delivery guy or were you a bike with the, with the, with the bag on the front handlebars?
1: I was a walker because okay. I wasn't very big as a kid Okay. and newspapers are heavy, especially right. Sunday. That's when all the all yeah, the absolutely. advertisements and the, and the comics and everything. Okay. So trying to carry that around and keep balance on a bike was impossible. So, you know, I, I would uh, put the, put the bag over my shoulder and, and walk around. And again, it was only two blocks, so it wasn't too bad.
0: Okay. Second question. If I was to go into your truck right now and turn on your
1: radio, what would I hear? You would likely hear country music. Okay. So I have a pretty broad range of musical interests.
0: Okay.
1: From hard rock to punk to, I was a very big alternative, um, you know, guy in the, in the nineties. And then, you know, there's country music now and it tends to go in phases. So, but right now, I think probably for the last 10 years, um, I've been really into country music and, you know, country music is not, not, our parents' country music, right, Jeff? Um, That's right. It really started to move and migrate a little bit more over to kind of that pop. Um, but there's some really great artists. And if anyone, you know, hasn't taken the opportunity to listen to country music, I would encourage you to do so because you, you'll be surprised.
0: No, you're absolutely right. It's definitely different. It's a little more uh, diluted from, from when we grew up years ago. But, okay, last question. Let's see what this, what this brings out if you could eat only one meal the rest of your life, what
1: would it be? Hmm. You know, I'd have to say, um, the first, the first thing that came to my mind is biscuits and gravy. (laughs) So that's, (laughs) so, you know, biscuits and gravy is something that my, my mother used to make. Right. Um, you know, we, we had seven kids, so she probably made it because it could go a long way. Right. Um, but it's also a great comfort food. And, you know, we would be outside a lot in the wintertime, whether we're delivering newspapers or we're shoveling snow or doing, you know, doing whatever we're doing. And then coming in and having that smell of oh. biscuits and gravy. Oh, it's, it's the best thing ever. My wife makes a great biscuits and gravy. Um, so they always say, you know, the way to a man's heart is through his stomach. So she got that right for sure, but yeah, I, I don't know how nutritional it is. I don't know the nutritional value, but I can say that you know it's definitely my my go to comfort food. Uh,
0: that that's that's great, and you you, you triggered a, a memory of mine when you said you know the the memory of that um, Sunday morning gravy because we used to eat dinner at one o'clock as right. an Italian family. You'd eat your dinner early and on a Sunday, and I could still smell and see. Football season, winter, my mother making a pot of gravy, that smell, dipping a piece of bread in it. So I, I get that whole, you, right. you go right back to it, right? And it, this is the reason why I, I tend to ask these kind of questions in an interview. You get the debit credit finance person across the desk from me. Well, what, what, there, there's more to that person, right? And so you get a couple of personal questions in there and you'll learn a lot. So really appreciate you spending time with me today learned a lot, took a couple of notes. I'm going to keep some for future reference. Appreciate you spending time with us today, Frank. Thank you.
1: Yes, Jeff. Thank you for having me as well. And I hope that, you know, there's some piece of advice in there somewhere that, that, you know, somebody that's listening can, can take with them and put in their tool bag. Uh, Certainly I don't have all the answers, but I think if you listen to people that have experience and have been through it, and I still do that today, you can always learn something. So I appreciate the time.
0: Absolutely. I'm sure they did. So thanks again, Frank. And thank you everybody for joining us for this episode. Make sure to hit subscribe for future episodes of my executive series. Thanks again. Talk to everybody soon. Bye-bye.